They need to be either outstandingly brilliant or they need to be provocative enough to bother everybody soon. And uh, I'll let you decide which one I am. It, well, let me just tell you, it won't take long. I'm, I'm the provocative one. And, and I, I am intending today to keep you all awake uh, after lunch. I don't care how many carbs you had. I don't care if you had five of those sandwiches back there. I intend to offend you today. So uh, aren't you glad you paid money to come to this thing? Yeah, yeah. So if you're a theologian, I'm going to offend you because I'm not even going to try to unpack theology behind this. If you are a pastor kind of person, I'm going to be offensive because I'm going to talk about a common pastoral paradigm that I think is inadequate. I'm going to challenge you to think about it from another point of view. If you are a therapist, you're going to be calling the certified, uh, the people that certified uh, Ann and me to use this particular profile within the first 30 minutes because we are absolutely abusing every ethical kind of use of this. So are you ready to be offended? All right, here we go. I think the notes uh, and the PowerPoint both are uh, in your Dropbox. And there's also a few hard copies if you don't have access to your Dropbox. Uh, down the center aisle at the end of each of your tables, there's uh, some handouts that uh, if you're interested to send one on down. Those of you that would like some hard copy, you can have that. Well, let's jump in. My name's Jared. And the funniest thing I'll say all day is that I've actually been asked to talk about emotional intelligence. Yeah, yeah that, that, that is the oxymoron. Uh, you know, I'm, uh, I, uh, I, I stumbled my way toward any interest in emotional intelligence and any degree of information or insight or, you know, just touching on expertise here or there that's possible is just hilarious for those of you that know me well. I mean, Jared and emotional intelligence and... You know, when did he go bad? When did he go soft? When did he go goofy would be a question some of you would have. But we're not going to unpack that. I'm here today to talk about your stuff, not my stuff. I didn't take this profile. You did. And so uh, you've got your results. And, and uh, so we're going to have some fun with it. I think it's in John 10.10 10 that Jesus talked about a good kind of life. I, uh, I love a couple of the versions. My purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. I like that. How about, I have come that they might have life more and better than they dreamed. I've come that they might have life and that they might have it to the full. Yeah. Well, I met some old pastors when I was a young pastor. They had missed that verse. Absolutely totally missed that verse. They were kind of old and cranky, uh, had burned out for Jesus. They looked like it. They sounded like it. They smelled like it. They had attitudes like it. I kind of wondered if they could really be four square because, you know, one of our favorite verses I think is in Hebrews chapter 13. You know, that famous one is at verse eight. Jesus Christ is the same. Say it with me yesterday and today and forever. You know that that verse is not the point, don't you? That verse is not the point of that passage. The verse is the foundation for the point in the passage, which is verse 7. Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life. And 
imitate their faith. Remember, consider, and imitate. Why? Because there should be a consistency over a person's life that credibly has introduced us to and fed us God's word that is some kind of a reflection of the consistency of the likeness of Jesus, who Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So those leaders, those of us, now I'm one of those people, older in life, remember them, consider the outcome of their way of life. How did it turn out for them? And and then if it worked out pretty well for them, then imitate their faith. Part of my interest in this area, there was actually three catalysts, and it happened about 10 years ago. The first was for 25 years, Anna and I uh, left pastoring at local church, church planning and pastoring, and worked with pastors, denominational stuff, regional, district stuff, national, international stuff. And we came across an awful lot of really spiritual, really like Jesus, sincere, faithful people whose lives were messed up. And I could not reconcile that. You notice the qualifiers that I put in? Spiritual, Christ-like character, sincere, faithful, and messed up. That was hard to reconcile. And so first, first, it's just working with some of you pastors for 25 years has done that thing to me. Secondly, Ann and I had life interrupted in our year of Jubilee. That sounds way too spiritual. I think it was just happened, but we were 49 years old. We were in our 50th year, and all of a sudden there was an interruption of life, and we had some time on our hands, and we had a kind of a year of an unexpected sabbatical to ask some questions. How is things working for us? And we actually did a life audit on the basis of values because we said, if these are really our values... And if we're living life in a way that supports those values and there's fruit related to those values, we want to keep doing more of that. That makes sense? Yeah. And we found some areas that said that's really working for us. So whatever we did in the first half, let's keep doing more of that in the second half. Then we came across some espoused values and we said, you know, we're not really having many results. So we only have two options. One is to drop the espoused value and just throw it out. (laughs) Or to have actually a life intervention and to live life in a way that's different to increase the possibility that maybe I'll actually get some results that are more in line with those values. So that was the second catalyst. Goofed up pastors and life interrupted and an opportunity to say, how is it working for us? The third catalyst was I was supposed to get done with that stupid doctorate and they make you do some research to do that. And so I had to have some suspects to, to do research with. And, and I thought, hey, my Foursquare pastor friends, they'd love to participate in a research project. And maybe we can discover some things together about how we're living life together that would be helpful for us and for successive generations as well. Before we launch into this, I just want to say a huge thank you to the men and women across the country, all 50 states of churches averaging between 50 on weekend attendance and 5,000 men and women, various language groups who participated in this study. It's no fun to participate in a study. There wasn't anything in it for them. And also to ask people to take a psychometric evaluation and then it goes off to some place and you never see results. That just requires a lot of courage. They knew that it was anonymous. They knew that I would never know the results. They knew that I wouldn't know if they participated or not. And they knew that district supervisors wouldn't find out their profiles either. 
But it still took a lot of courage to do that. And those men and women are the ones that generated for us some insight that I think might be helpful for you. So I'd like to do four things with you this afternoon. We'll see if they say make sense to you. Uh, First of all, I'd like to give you a quick and general introduction to EI, emotional intelligence or EQ, emotional quotient. They're talking about the same thing, synonymous terms. Uh, Then I'd like to do a quick group debrief. For those of you that have your results in front of you, we're going to do a quick talk through and um, probably about 30 minutes to get through the whole thing. And you'll gain a few insights for yourself. And if you didn't take the assessment, walking through it will be helpful as well because it sets us up for the third thing we'd like to do. And that's to talk about what we've learned about Foursquare pastors as it relates to emotional intelligence and how we function in life together. And then finally, in the last few minutes, because the group that we have here together are those who are interested in helping train other pastors, primarily in pre-service, but some of you in service as well, we want to talk about some practical implications. Sound good to you? All right. Daniel, you're my audience today. You said okay, and I'm, I'm going for it. Emotional and social intelligence. It's been around in terms of a field of study for about 25 years. How many of you are familiar with the phrase emotional intelligence? Hands up all across the room. Sure. Yeah. Just about everybody. Daniel Goleman, G-O-L-E-M-A-N, popularized the term with his book in 1995 called, e, among a, called Emotional Intelligence. There's three major streams. The one that we're using today that's associated with the EQI, the Emotional Quotient Inventory, is the Baron stream, spelled B-A-R-O-N. Baron is how it's pronounced. And it's one of three major streams of emotional intelligence. I mention that because you will read information from the other streams and it will be confusing. They all are robust uh, scientific approaches to understand life. Their tools all measure what they say they're going to measure, but they're measuring three different things. There's overlap, but they're different. And the question was that, wanted to, that they wanted to answer was, why is it that a lot of really smart people, IQ, intelligence, quotient, end up not being very successful in life, particularly professionally, but domestically and personally As well, and what's the relationship with with uh, smarts, with IQ and EQ, and and as they begin to answer that question, they discovered some interesting stuff. This is how it works: EQ, which is a measurement of not that prefrontal cortex logic kind of part of our brain. But that part that's more associated with the limbic system and those internal parts of the brain like the hippocampus and the uh, amygdala where uh, unconsciously there's, uh, our brain makes sense of what's happening and stress hormones and other hormones are released and we have physiological response to that and then we have emotional feelings about that all happening in a split second before we rationally sort through life. How much effect does that, emotional intelligence, how much effect does that have on professional success? And in studies, there's variation within different kinds of professional groups, but what they discovered was if you're smart enough to be at the table, in other words, if you're smart enough to be a four-square minister, 
then how smart you are, IQ, will have about a 6% contribution to how successful you are. Yeah. So I have a friend. His name is Ben. The church that we pastor, Ann and I co-pastor in Hillsborough, Oregon, uh, there's uh, quite a few PhDs that work at Intel. And uh, Ben is 33 years old. He's working at Intel. He's become a friend. And his work group, the average IQ is 136 points. These are pretty smart people. But Ben's professional career track at Intel now will have very little to do with his IQ. He's smart enough to be in the room. But it will be tremendously dependent on his EQ. Studies have indicated up to 48% of professional success is related to EI, to emotional intelligence. Once you're smart enough to be at the table, it's your emotional intelligence that differentiates people who tend to perform professionally and occupationally. We are going to move this eventually toward talking about ministers, but I want to lay the groundwork uh, initially. And so let's talk about what EI is not, first of all. And you'll notice that there in the red, EI, first of all, is not personality. It's not temperament. This isn't a disc profile. It's not a StrengthsFinders 2.0. This is not a Myers-Briggs temperament inventory. All of those things are helpful. Those are tools that we use to help us understand ourselves on other. But those are temperament and personality tools. Now, here's where, where I'm going to start messing with this. EI is not spirituality. Uh, Ann and I have literally administered this to hundreds of pastors in Foursquare and many other denominations. One of those, I'll call him Bill, because my friend Bill here is today, so that's a safe name. And it's not, where is Bill? Bill, Bill, Bill. Oh, he walked out on the session? That Bill. Yeah, we are going to talk about Bill. He is literally a friend of mine for three decades, one of the most snuggling up close to, in love with, hearing the voice of the Spirit, obedient, passionate, sincere followers of Jesus I know. He is a truly spiritual man. His faithfulness, his faithfulness is amazing. The fruit of the Spirit in his life, love, poise, love joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, meekness, self-control. This man has been transformed by the Holy Spirit into Christ like character, which moves us to the third thing that EI is not. He is spiritual and he has Christ-like character. He took the EQI. By the way, I looked at all of yours. I remember none of them. I just don't. I'm too old to remember. I do too many of these to remember. I don't want to remember. But I will tell you this, that none of you came close to the severity of his results. In fact, we did a phone debrief And at the end of that conversation, I said, you have thoughts of killing yourself regularly, don't you? And he said, nearly every day. Hmm. And I gave him a name of a professional counselor who's also an ordained licensed minister. And I said, your next conversation at the end of this phone call is to call him. Is that your decision? Are you agreeing to do that? His life was in danger. Yes, I will do that. Will you call me right after you've made that appointment? Within 10 minutes, will you call me back? Now, I told you that I wouldn't unpack theology here. I don't know that I can. I'm not that good at it. I'll leave it to you theologians. But I will tell you as a practitioner of three decades of working with leaders. Now, while it's almost impossible for me to reconcile this reality, it explains a lot of odd behavior 
from a lot of ministers who have taken their own good advice to become increasingly spiritual. And we'd better do that, and we'd better help other people with that, because that's what we're called and good at doing. And who truly have allowed the Holy Spirit to transform their character into the likeness and image of Christ. And they live life from that servant-hooded, generous, joyful, peaceful spirit. And can be utterly broken in a part of their human being in ways that are difficult to reconcile with those other two realities. And part of my search was to answer the question, why do some Christians do what people like me, a pastor, tell them to do, and they faithfully do it for a long time, and stay such lousy human beings? (laughs) Have you asked that question? They just go around and around. You know, the old mountain is the good metaphor. They go around and around, cyclical failures in life, coming back and repenting. We deal with it spiritually. We better deal with it spiritually. Was there sin? Repent. Were there demons? Take care of them. We'd better deal with it at a character level. Was it a lack of self-control? Was it a lack of love? We'd better deal with it at a character level. Some of you who have been pastors have your own stories of people that you've taken around that circle. It's called a spiritual character loop. And you've helped folks go around that loop time after time with successive ongoing chronic failures that they don't understand and we don't as well. I don't know that this is all the answer to that at all. I'm not purporting that for a moment, but I will tell you that I think this begins to help make some sense about another part of the human being that God has wonderfully designed that we might learn some things about. What EI is in the blue is it's related to performance. I mentioned that there's a remarkable correlation between EI and performance, and, and this tool that you have was designed to be therapeutic, supposed to be used by therapists as a quick insight into the human psyche, giving them an opportunity to help people, their patients, uh, their clients begin to unpack things. But a few years ago, it was discovered that this tool is related to professional performance, and it began being used to profile people for selection processes. So those of you that have read the book, The EQ Edge, which I recommend as a reference book, You discovered that a few years ago, the U.S. and the Israeli Air Forces decided to find a way to better select pilots that they were training. Uh, Many of the pilots washed out, and that's a several million dollar cost for a pilot to be trained and washed out. And in both the Israeli and the U.S. Air Force, it was discovered that there was a very particular emotional intelligence profile that was associated with highly effective pilots. And so it was used in the selection process the next year. And both of those countries' air forces saved multiple millions of dollars in one year by using it as a selection tool. Now, here's the funny thing. Did you know that fighter pilots are not supposed to be balanced human beings? Would that surprise you? So we have these very two different uses for this tool. Therapeutically, we want people to be balanced and healthy. Boring. We want all of your scores to be in perfect alignment with one another. But if we want to find a fighter pilot, we do not want a boring person, folks. We want zigs and zags all across that thing. 
We just want to make sure we have the right zigs and the right zags. It's related to performance. Uh, Anne, particularly, uh, in part of her practice, has used this with other denominations. And uh, with one of those, they were developing a new national team, and she helped them with some hires. And one of the things that they did was uh, asked her to um, administer the EQI to a group of candidates who were all relatively equally qualified for these national denominational roles. And then there is, it's not an overly sophisticated, but there is a mathematical formula that is used because there are certain correlations among these that after you do the math in the algorithm, you actually come up with an absolute score. And here's what the research has indicated. When you rank candidates that are equal in other qualifications and they have been trained and supervised in the same way, people who are ranked number one out of that group in EI and number two, when both hired in one year, number one always substantially outperforms in productivity number two. This really does make an interesting difference. EI is secondly subconscious habits. With the um, availability of brain imaging, especially in the last seven or eight years, making it much more possible for research, what EI folks discovered was they knew that they were measuring stuff that was real. They just didn't know where it resided in the human being. You know, it's this psychological stuff is kind of mushy and squirrely, isn't it? Like some of you think it's bunk, and I'm noticing that right now. But this will end. With brain imaging, what was discovered was what was actually being measured were neural pathways. A neural pathway is a habit. God's designed our brains so remarkably well. Gave us a few billion neurons to start with. And those neurons, they like to hang out together. And as adults, just a few years ago, it was discovered that we actually get about 10,000 new neurons a day. Now, that's not very many relative to the billions that you're working with. But those new neurons are running around looking for something to do. And they are attracted to new learning. And when you actually tell your mind, I think I'd like to learn this thing, those neurons hang out and they find each other. And here's the quip, you've heard it. Neurons that fire together, wire together. They find each other, they make a synoptic connection, and the next day when you come back and say to your brain, I really am interested in this, I'm coming back for round two, those neurons that have found each other and made a connection actually begin to broaden and form among them other connections, and so they get broader and they make other connections. And we say that if you do something 30 days in a row, it will likely become a habit. That's what's happening in your brain. You're developing a new neural pathway. We say that they get broader because physiologically there actually is breadth to them and size. And we say they get deeper, not because they physically move deeper into the mass of the brain, but they go deeper into our subconscious. It's exactly what was happening in Bert's model that he talked about this morning. I start out unconsciously incompetent. That's what we were before we took the EQI. There's just stuff that you didn't know. You didn't know it was knowable. And now you know it. And you have become now consciously incompetent. Isn't that a wonderful thing? Bert, we have moved the ball down the field. We are now on our own two-foot line. Here we are. We have gone to consciously uh, incompetent. And if we're going to then change 
a habit that is a neurologic connection in the brain, we begin to give focused attention to that area. That's called conscious competence that we're moving for. I'm not competent unless I'm thinking about it. But when I think about it, I can do it now with competence. And what was Bert's fourth area? It eventually goes deeper and it is unconscious competence. So when you learned how to drive, you may remember the first time that you went out. And on that day, you have never been more attentive in your life to driving the car. It's also nearly guaranteed that you never since then have been less competent than you were that day. Highest attention and lowest competence. Those of you that drove here this morning, you were scary. You were ridiculously scary. You didn't even think about what you were doing. You spun out of that hotel parking lot. You came down here. You didn't even know that lights were red or green or whatever. You got here. By the way, you were a very safe driver today because you have developed unconscious competence. Your brain receives about 40 million bits of information every second. Excuse me, I'm going to go with the four. 11 million bits of information. Your brain does stuff with most of those that you'll never know about. It allows you to become aware of 40 bits of information a second. So what happens to the other almost 11 million bits a second? Your brain has developed pathways called schemas. And those schemas know what to do with that information. You have taught your brain what to do with information. And so we find ourselves acting out in life. Snuggling up to Jesus, loving him passionately, filled with the Spirit, hearing his voice, tender-hearted, Christ-like character, a miracle of transformation of the Holy Spirit, genuinely well-intended, loving people of service, gentleness in our lives. And we come home after a day and we say, how did that ever happen? How was I so misunderstood? How did that thing go on again as we tend to act out? Now, here's the good news. Because of the brain's plasticity, this is absolutely changeable. Habits are changeable. <laughs> Unfortunately for some of us, IQ is pretty much a stable state. After age 17 or, or so, folks, it's pretty much kind of there. There's not a lot of brain teasers we can do to bump it up from 96 to 98. It's just kind of the IQ thing's kind of there. But EQ is absolutely changeable. It is just like any other habit that comes from neurologic brain wiring. If you attend to it, you can create new pathways, and you can change. Now, this will mess with some of you. We're all spirit-filled people, I know. You don't have to agree with this. I'm here to be provocative today, not particularly helpful, but here it is. This will mess with you. I work with business clients. I'm bivocational. I work with business clients who are, some of whom are far from God. 
And they get this EQ thing down and they grab onto a couple and they work like crazy. And six months later, they retest and they have grown substantially all by themselves. Why? Because they are changing habits in their life. I work with some Christians. They EQI, spirit-filled leaders. They get their results. Now they have some information. They don't work on it. They, they test six months later and they go, I've actually gotten a little bit worse. And you know why? Because this is stuff that is our stewardship to work on. Hmm. Messing with you, I know. I used to weigh 84 pounds more than I do now. And I weighed 84 pounds for a few decades, more than I do now for a few decades. And I was probably about as spiritual back then as I am now and maybe more so. We only hope we don't regress, right? We hope we're moving forward. But I was pressing into Jesus like crazy. And I think that the Holy Spirit was doing a pretty good job transforming my character into the likeness and image of Christ. I don't know that I have gotten that much more like Jesus in the last 10 years. And I prayed like crazy. Lord, I would really want to be a steward of my body. As I know it's a temple of the Holy Spirit. Uh, but I prayed. I fasted and prayed. And then I would not fast. And then, so what's the story I'm telling? The Holy Spirit did not make me lose weight. And a demon did not leave me so I could lose weight. And I didn't flip a character switch to lose weight. Somewhere along the line, I made a decision that I was going to do a series of interventions in my life that might change my physiology. And I am wanting to put this stuff in the same bucket as, the, as that so that we can understand some of the interventions. Now, by the way, I make this a part of my spiritual work. You know what I've done. I have done an artificial thing in dividing out spirit and character and brain physiology, haven't I? I think when God looks at us, he doesn't look at us and say, oh, there's three parts down there. Oh, you believe there's four? Uh, there's four parts over there. No, he looks at us with absolute integrity. He doesn't divide us apart like this. That's, that's artificial on our part. But it seems to me that maybe in this whole of being Christ followers who are spiritual beings, that we may have neglected part of that spirituality in its largest sense, a part of our well-being that he has made us stewards of us. And I do this work in my devotional life. I draft off the habit. I go to brain gym. I call it every morning. I did it this morning for five minutes. I may talk a little later about what that looks like, but the point is this. I would never do this work outside of the context of the Word and the Spirit. That is the context of life for us. But I also do this work in the context of the word and the spirit, knowing that I am a steward of this work. And like any other habit I am changing in my life, it is probably going to be, do, uh, be accomplished with intentionality and with a little bit of effort. Well, I promised the first thing I would do would be an introduction. And that's the first thing I've done. And that was a long introduction. So I'm ready to move on, but would love to take a question or two or hear a comment or two or a pushback or two. By the way, I don't do this professionally. This is my hobby. So you can batter and bash this. And if you don't like it, my feelings won't be hurt at all. It really won't. It's helpful for me, and I'm getting to pass it on to you. Questions or comments that may have come to mind before we forge on. Well, Joe, I have whipped this group into an after-lunch frenzy right now. 
of interest. Let's go ahead and take a look on, and we're going to quickly talk through the 16 areas of emotional health that are here. And this is going to be the world's first ever debrief of 100 EQIs in 30 minutes. Here we go. You'll notice that there are five major categories. If you happen to have your results in front of you, if you don't, I'll describe what they're looking at on page three, which is the graph of results. There are five major categories self-perception, self-expression, interpersonal composite, etc. They're called composites. We are going to completely ignore those. Those are not useful categories for us, for our purposes. We are going to notice the very top bar, which says total EI. Do you see that bar? Is that the correct label? Total EI. It's uh, page... Online, yeah. So you have a two-page handout, and some of you also have hard copy of two-page of your results, and others of you have your 19-page results that are online. Some of you have not retrieved your two-page results. Mike Larkin has them. He's holding them up, and feel free to take a look at them. If you have your results in front of you, if you'll have them later, just simply know that your total EI is normed around the number 100, just like cognitive intelligence IQ is. Some of you are lower than 100, and some of you are higher than 100. And if you're lower than 100, that's a bummer, isn't it? Because no one in this room has been below average in anything in recent life. That's just true. That's not how we approach life. And so I want to chuckle about it, and I want to make some sense about it, and I want to tell you what that means to us. It means very little. The number is very important, but where you are on the average of life means very little. It's an important number because if you drew from that number, let's assume that your score was a 92, if you drew imaginary or a physical line directly vertically down to the bottom of the page. That's where that number is helpful. We're interested in your total or your average. And then we're interested in how much you vary off of that. How much are your higher scores higher than that? And how much are your lower scores lower than that? And it's those zigs and zags in life that are the relational speed bumps that help explain why some things happen cyclically in our lives and cause us to be misunderstood by others. So very quickly, let's run through the 16. I'll give you a quick uh, definition and uh, what it feels like to us and what it sounds like to others. The first one is self-regard. Respecting oneself and having confidence want you to notice this does not say self-esteem. This term, as it's used in EI, works hard to differentiate itself from the psychological concept of self-esteem. They are very different ideas. Self-regard is really similar to our biblical sense of humility. It's really understanding who I am, as Tammy talked about last night. My good stuff, my strengths, my gifts, my weaknesses, my experiences, warts and all... And when I get up in the morning, I have a sense, if I'm high self-regard, of saying, you know, I am so far from perfect, but I think when God made me, he really did a pretty good job overall. Low self-regard is having a very different point of view. And remember that this is not 
thought, uh, cognitively, this is a, a subconscious state for us. We'll talk a little bit more about self-regard later when we talk about four-square pastors. But it feels like I feel pretty good about myself, warts and all. And others say, you know, he, he comes across with confidence and security. The second area is self-actualization. Hey, if you don't happen to like Abraham Maslow, I've never met him myself personally, but some of us don't like him, I've been told. Uh, You're relieved here. This isn't his definition of the hierarchy of need. But the the term was co-opted by these folks, and it means the pursuit of meaning and self-improvement. I liken it to this, two hands. On one hand, it's who Joe is. It's his strengths, his weaknesses, his gifts, his experiences, his background, his wisdom, his knowledge. It's who Joe is in terms of his competencies and capabilities. And on the other hand, it's what Joe's getting to do in life right now. And high self-actualization is where those two are coming together almost with no friction in a beautiful merger of who Joe is and what he's getting to do in life Generally, primarily, professionally and domestically, high self-actualization is those coming together well. Low self-actualization is someone who's chronically living in a state of either I don't know who I am. If that's you, find out who you are. Bert's first question on the back of the bus, who am I? Or you're living life outside of sync with who God designed you to be. And you know what it feels like. It feels like trying to cram those fingers together and they don't mesh well. And you can be as faithful as you want to be, but you know that life is not working that well. It is also measured the kind of people who tend to have goals and have some plans to support those goals and actually are making some progress toward them. I feel, if I'm high self-actualized, I feel purposeful and fulfilled. And others say he's comfortable in his own skin. Number three, emotional self-awareness. Understanding our emotions. I know that I feel. I know what I feel. And I can express that in helpful ways. This is one that I've been a lifetime student working on. I grew up in a Mennonite home on the farm. And we had three emotional words that we used in our home. You could be good, you could feel bad, or you could be okay. But actually, those were the three emotions that we could have, but you couldn't express that you were feeling bad. So we had to lie about that one, to be pious. We could only feel good or okay. And Ann and I were about 25. We planted the church two years before. And and I think I was in a conference where Jerry Cook, some of you are familiar with him, was doing some teaching. And he talked about emotions, and he gave us all a list of 144 emotional words. And I went back to the church, and I put it on the wall right in front of my desk. And during the day, several times, I would glance up, and I would actually read a set of five emotional words to teach myself emotional vocabulary. Because if you don't have labels, you can't label And I actually, I'm doing fairly well on this thing now. And some of you that might find yourself low, that may be an excellent place for for you to start. Get some vocabulary and it'll help you with some labeling. A high emotional self-awareness person says, I feel in touch with my feelings. And others say, you know, she really knows what she feels. The fourth one is emotional expression. This is one I was working on this morning. 
people probably say about me, you know, Jared, he kind of holds things close to the vest. Yeah, I may know what's going on, but may tend not to express that. Some people would say, well, that could be pride. It could be. That would be a spiritual problem, wouldn't it? They could say, well, that you have fear about being vulnerable. Well, that would be a character issue, wouldn't it? How about a third possibility? How about that I'm wired habitually to know that I'm experiencing emotions and just not bother to share them with other people? Could it just be a bad habit and not a spiritual issue or a character issue? Maybe. Maybe. I work on it on those terms. A person who has high emotional expression feels I'm open to sharing my feelings and I find myself doing that without even thinking about it. And others say, you know, he really lets us know what he feels. Yeah. How about number five, assertiveness? Any of you want, any of you want to go here? Any assertives here? Yeah, this is a good one. Just like Jesus, that's right. Assertiveness has nothing to do with volume of voice, how far you're spitting, how red your face has become or other ways of flushing, how sweaty your palms have gotten or how accelerated your heart rate is. But it's how long you stay in the fight. It's how long you just stay comfortable continuing the conversation. This is what low assertiveness kind of looks and feels like. I'm with a team meeting, and I've given my opinion eight different ways. And I've done it as nicely as I can, but they're still talking about it. And I begin to think, if they haven't gotten it by now, those bozos that I work with, they're probably not going to get it. And I feel emotionally, if I did tell them an eight time, I would be pushy, aggressive, and demanding. You know what it feels like to get there, don't you? Sure. Now, everybody else at the table is going, I wonder why Greg just stepped out of the conversation. And by the way, if I have low self-regard... My question will be, I wonder what I just did to cause Greg to step out of the conversation. Hmm. If I'm high self-regard, I'll go, I wonder what's going on with Greg right now. It wouldn't be me. I wonder what's going on with Greg right now that he stepped out of the conversation. How long we stay in the fight? Are you an eight-round person? Are you a 15-round person? Assertiveness, I would say, I'm comfortable staying in the fight. And others would say, she's pleasantly persistent. Notice the pleasantly. She hasn't gotten upset. She's not shouting. She's not mean. She's not. She's just staying in for another round and another round. For those of you who are height assertives, just be aware that you work, do life with some people who aren't. It's up to you to invite them back in. Those of us that are low assertives, all we need is an invitation to rejoin the conversation. And we go back to ground zero and we have about eight more rounds in us. But we need for you high assertives to invite us back in. Let's take a look at number six, independence. To be free. Uh, Free from emotional dependency on others. Low independence sounds like this in mental self-talk. Well, I need to make this decision, but if I make this decision, I think that Tim would probably think and feel this way about that decision. But you know, if I made that decision, then I think, I think that Dan would probably think or feel that way about it. See what I've just done? 
I've rented mental space to my speculation about what I think someone else is going to think or feel. There's a couple of problems with that process, isn't it? It's absolutely debilitating. I'll never make a courageous decision. And frankly, many of my decisions will be poor because I'm speculating about what other people think or feel. By the way, we're all for getting counsel, right? That's not a speculation. I actually want to ask Mark what he thinks or feels about a decision that I'm making. Now I'm not speculating. I'm actually receiving that counsel into part of the process that I'm using to vet my decision. But low independence people find themselves often paralyzed and often also on the other side of making a decision tend to blame shift to others. The old classic in the garden technique for I made a decision that I don't really want to own and to live with. This is how independence feels. It says, I feel responsible for my decisions and others say, you know, he really does decide on his own. Social responsibility, it's a social consciousness, it's, it's being helpful, it's being a good citizen. By the way, uh, there's not too many pastors of megachurches here, and so this is just kind of fun. This is not rigorous research, this is anecdotal from a few hundred of these, but pastors of megachurches tend to score very low on social responsibility, very low. I have some speculation about that. We can chat about it later. But uh, if you have low social responsibility and you aspire to be a pastor of a megachurch, you may be well-suited. You may be well on your way. So don't work on it, whatever. Keep that one. That one might work out well for you. It's caring for the whole, whether the whole be a marriage, the roommates I live with, the life I, small group I do life with, the staff I'm a part of, the church that I'm associated with, the community I live in, with the nation I live in. It's caring for the whole. And I feel concerned for the group and others say, you know, she really cares about us. Number 10, problem solving. Oh, it's the only way I'm going to get through, Jen. <laughs> Let's go to seven. Thank you. I appreciate that. Interpersonal relationships. It's that I find myself initiating, developing, Sustaining relationships that include the exchange of affection. So for those of us that find ourselves relatively lower, one of those four words likely drug your score down a bit. I habitually find myself initiating relationships or developing relationships or sustaining relationships that include the exchange of affection. And if I've developed those habits in life, I tend to feel about myself. I'm interested in new relationships and, and others say about her, she's easy to get to know. Empathy. Empathy is understanding and appreciating how others feel. It really is the whole idea of walking for a mile in another person's shoes. It's that we know when they're feeling and what they're feeling and we can help them express that in helpful ways. Um, this is not sympathy. Sympathy is a wonderful thing and it's a beautiful thing. But you know that sympathy is, always starts with me, the point of view. If I'm sympathetic toward Bert, I say to Bert, I really feel horribly about what you're experiencing. Notice the point of view? It's first person point of view. 
It's how I feel about Bert. Now, sympathy is very powerful. Be sympathetic. That's not what was measured here, though. This is also not compassion. Jesus was with compassion. Fill in the word. Jesus was moved with compassion. Compassion is that sense of experience that causes us to move into action. Sympathy is how I express how I'm feeling about Bert's situation. Compassion is what motivates and moves me into action. Empathy is my ability to do conversation with Daniel and say to Daniel, it seems to me that that must be very stressful and beyond irritating for you. I am now telling Daniel what I think is happening for him. Very powerful. Because when we express empathy, other people say about us, he really gets me. Now notice those three that have been bundled together under the big label interpersonal relationship. Interpersonal relationship and empathy and social responsibility. This is where people say, she is really easy to get to know. He really gets me, and she really cares about us. Do you think if the people that our pastors served said those three things about them for a lifetime, that maybe there'd be the quality of relationship to really engage in powerful and meaningful ways in their lives? I think so. I think our great shepherd, that we would say of him, you know, he's pretty easy to get to know. You know, he really gets me. And you know, he really cares for us. Did we talk about problem solving? Or is that the one that I'm now moving to? Number 10. Here we go. You have seven more in you? Not really. If you are done with going through these, I'm going to continue. You can take a a break. Just be discreet about that when you go, okay? Here we go. Number 10, problem solving. To find solutions when emotions are involved. Pastors are frequently low. Some are very low in problem solving. And generally, when we do a debrief with them, they will say, I don't get that one at all. I think I'm a great problem solver. And we very quickly affirm, you probably are. What they did not measure here is strategic problem solving, technical problem solving, or organizational problem solving. Do you notice how it's qualified? It's problem solving when emotions and human relationships are at stake. That's the sphere. And it is, it is an internalized process of knowing that there is a problem. You do know that there are people who are clueless, don't you? They don't know that there's a problem. That's where we have to start. I know that there is a problem. I know what to call the problem. I come up with multiple solutions for the problem. I evaluate those and I choose one. And I actually do it with evaluation on the other side. Now, I have just described a linear, rational process which is done with the frontal cortex of the brain. What we're describing here is not someone's ability to do what I just did, do that intentionally. We can intentionally do that. We have measured here, though, the internal habitual process toward problem solving. A little later, we'll talk about why pastors tend to be relatively low here, or at least some things that they can do about it. Let's look at reality testing, number 11. It's the subjective and the objective spectrum here. 
If I'm low relative testing, I'm more subjective, meaning I go internally to gather the data points to make my decisions in life. The higher the reality testing, the more I supplement my internal experience with external third-party data. People who are low in, in uh, reality testing tend to have one of two extremes in their experience. The first is that they have their head in the sand. They are clueless about a problem. She looks at her husband and she says, Don't you know that the house is burning around us? Metaphorically, whatever the house is. And he says, No. Is there a problem? Or the other extreme of taking a small problem. I smell a little bit of smoke in the kitchen and screaming, the house is burning down. It's making a mountain out of a molehill. So here are the metaphors. On one hand, I will either make a mountain out of a molehill or I will have my head in the sand. Higher the uh, reality testing, the more likely that I would feel about myself. I'm really in tune with what's real. And others would tend to say, she really, she really gets what's going on around here. Let's take a look at number 12, impulse control. It's the ability to resist or to delay a, an impulse to act. It's, it's how long you can sit on an idea or a decision before you have to express it. Yeah, it's a fun one, isn't it? Yeah. We, uh, impulse control. Those that are higher, we tend to say and feel, I'm, I'm comfortable holding my own thoughts. And others say he speaks and acts when it's right. Timely about that. Thirteen is flexibility. The ability to intuitively adapt emotions and thoughts and behaviors. It's, it's how we respond when an unexpected relational experience happens. You're leading a team meeting that day as the facilitator. All of a sudden, he bursts out in a way that's absolutely uncharacteristic. He melts down. He's screaming and raving. High flexibility is able to immediately move into that crisis, deal with it appropriately, and move back to the agenda for the meeting that day. Low flexibility either completely gets off track and hijacked by that unexpected thing, or ignores it as though it didn't happen to stick with our rigid agenda. Flexibility. And then 14 is stress tolerance. How we cope with stressful situations. And it's when we begin to feel overwhelmed. It's when we start to put up the white flag. A high stress tolerance person feels I'm able to handle a lot. And relative to others, I seem to be able to do that without stressing, getting worried, anxious, or having physiological responses to stress. And others would say, you know, he really is the calm in the storm. Number 15 is optimism. It's, it's that positive outlook on life. It's the pessimistic and the optimistic scale. Now, to this point, I have resisted using biblical terminology. Some of you have noticed that, haven't you? It's the first time you've ever heard any person talking in this kind of a venue that hasn't used biblical language for 30 minutes, and some of you have checked out because of that. I've got to bring a Bible word into this thing. Seriously, I've resisted using those words because of my conviction that we're not measuring spirituality here. Now let me use this word, hope. 
Because hope is often associated with optimism. And I'm wanting to tell you that that's not what was measured here. Hope is a, is a spiritual virtue. And there are people who are filled with hope. That's a spiritual virtue. That score very low in optimism. Because that's brain wiring. Yeah? And so those that are lower in optimism might want to take a look at that. And you know the glass probably is uh, half full rather than half empty. And one of the things that we've learned about followers is they love to follow people who are optimistic. That's true of all of us, isn't it? Who wants to follow a leader that always looks at the downside? Is always telling us what might and probably will go wrong. No, 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 no. And so part of the leader's toolkit is to habitually look at life through good reality testing where all the data is gathered, but through an optimism that says, you know, as bad as today is, things tend to work out pretty well, and this one probably will too. I feel, if I'm a high optimism, that it will turn out well. And others say, you know, she generally sees a a bright future. Well, let's wrap it up with happiness. And if you do have your uh, own results, you'll notice that you have to go all the way to the last page, page 19, to get the happiness score because it is a composite of four of the other areas. Happiness has taken quite a beating in the last few years, especially in the evangelical community. We've pretty much beat the snot out of this word. You know, we've all heard the sermons. Bless God. He didn't call us to be happy. We have a suffering theology here, and I am exemplary in that regard. (laughs) Furthermore, happiness, don't you know, came from the same Latin word that happenstance came with. And bless God, outward external circumstances are not what make me happy or not. I am not happy. And so we've pretty much gotten happy out of the church. Yeah. Happy is gone. Yeah. (laughs) Well, that's a caricature, obviously. But actually, the academic community has beaten up the word happiness pretty well, too. Because what was being measured here was not being well summarized with the label happy. Happy feels to us like it is an internal response to an external circumstance. Happiness does seem to be rather light and fleeting. And what was really being measured here was a deep sense that can hardly be affected by external circumstances. It requires the death of a loved one to diminish your happiness quotient. If you tested one day and lost your spouse and retested a week later, your happiness number would only be depressed potentially by two or three points. We are not measuring the immediate feelings about even a traumatic circumstance. Remember what's being measured? Habit patterns, physiology, stuff that's unconscious. And happiness is much more aligned with our biblical sense of deep joy than it is something that is determined by outside circumstances. It's a general sense of I'm satisfied with life. I'm content at my life. I feel satisfied and thriving. And others say he tends to exude deep joy. And because of that, if you do read the literature on happiness research, 
And by the way, there's a lot of literature. This is a robust topic. You'll find that the language has gone from happiness to well-being. And the current language is thriving, which gets closer at our idea of Jesus' promise in John 10.10. I have come to give you real and abundant life beyond your dreams. Well, I told you that we do a debrief together, and we've done that, and we're about to finish that piece of the presentation up. But on the next slide, we're going to ask you to to give you some uh, uh, suggestions to do. This is your homework. This is how you can begin to make sense of some of this on your own. The first I mentioned is that you uh, draw your physical or your Uh, imaginary line from your total EI score down to the bottom of the page. And then for each of the following 16 uh, areas, just calculate the variance. So if your average score at the top was 98 and self-regard is a 108, then that would be a plus 10. If on your next one, your score is an 87 then the variance from your average score would be a negative 11. So that's the homework you do. Let's figure out what the variance is. And here's what we're looking for. We prefer that you wouldn't have a variance of more than 10 points. And we really hope that you don't have too many variances of more than 15 points. Because it's the zigs and the zags that mess you up in life. Let's imagine that I am 100, but my assertiveness is a 120. I stay in the fight a long time, smiling, but stay in the fight. My self-regard is a 115. I come off with a lot of self-confidence, and my self-actualization is a 117. I really come across as being comfortable in my own skin. By the way, high is good. Don't improve your scores by shrinking any of them. Just grow the lower ones forward. Okay, self-confident, high self-actualization. Here's here's Joe. Boy, you know when Joe comes, man, he feels comfortable in his own skin and he just exudes confidence. And we don't ever have to ask Joe what's going on with Joe because that assertiveness thing is there and he's just there and he's just there and he's just there. This is all good, right? Let's imagine that impulse control for Joe is a 67. Guess what? We're hearing from Joe a little more than we want to hear from Joe. And have you noticed in life that when we judge people, we tend to judge them in pejorative character terms? Ah, back to the character spiritual loop. Either Joe is not spiritual, you stinking rotten sinner, or he's demonized, which is probably worse, or he just lacks Christ-like character. Joe just isn't very self-controlled. And what does it feel like when Joe, Joe comes cruising into my life? feels like I've been hit with a fire hose. It feels like he's domineering. It feels like he's demanding. It feels like he just won't shut up. It feels like he doesn't care for me. He feels like it has to be his way, especially if he's low in flexibility. And Joe comes back from that encounter and says, 
I have no idea what happened. I love people. I'm all about loving God and people. I prayed about this meeting this morning. I went in with the best of intentions. In fact, I felt good through the whole conversation until they started screaming at me before they stomped out and slammed the door in my face. And this has only been happening for three decades in my life. Now, I'm a good pastor for Joe. And so I'm going to tell him, you must have sinned, Joe. On your knees right now, baby. You'd better repent. You don't love God and love people. And after you get done with that, Joe, we're going to talk about your character. Because if you just let the Holy Spirit transform you into the likeness of Christ, you would have self-control. And that wasn't self-control. And Joe beats his head against the wall. There's blood dripping off of the bricks over there. And once again, Joe has fixed it spiritually and with character until tomorrow when Joe prays about it again and goes out with the best of intentions and has wonderful conversation and finds himself once again being horribly misunderstood and judged in pejorative language and I wonder what happened so here's your homework it's to figure out some of the zigs and the zags and I'm going to be absolutely unsatisfying to most of you and want you to know that you have my contact information and I or my colleague Isaac or Ann or others of us will be happy to do some phone chats with you to help make some sense of your own. Identify potential growth opportunity areas. The lowest ones would be candidates that would be outstanding. Read descriptions about that area or those two or three areas in your results in the 19-page document. Create an action plan for how you're going to take steps forward by investing five to ten minutes a day like you would in changing any other habit. And then I encourage you, if you're interested, to buy the book, either electronically or physical versions, physical versions, the EQ Edge by Stein, S-T-E-I-N, and book. It's the resource that was written to go along with this. Go directly to the chapters that talk about the areas that are growth opportunities for you. And it will have not only more information, but some helpful hints for you to uh, employ uh, later as you move forward. You can also go, it's not listed on your notes, but to our website called turnaroundchurch.com. That's turnaroundchurch.com, and you'll find some more information as well for you. There is... On the next page of your handout today, an ABCDE template. I'm not going to unpack it today, but I wanted to show you the tool that I most frequently use. It's the one that Daniel caught me using this morning in the hotel lobby early, early when I was doing my uh, quiet time. And in my quiet time, I have a template. Er- that early in the morning, I'm not good for human consumption. I even need to remind myself every day that I am alive and awake and what I should do. So I, like probably many of you, have created a template on a page in a Word document, and it leads me stumbling through what I'm doing. And so it starts out with the SOAP acronym, and then it goes to the ACTS acronym, Adoration, Confession, Thanksgiving, and Supplication. And then I go to Listening, and then it reminds me of the two emotional intelligence areas that I'm working on. And this morning I selected one of those, and it took me five minutes to unpack it across the ABCDE metrics template here. Five minutes of work. I prayed about God's help in that area, and I moved on. I don't think about it the rest of the day. We don't develop habits in real life. We develop habits when we give intention to them. 
If I want to become stronger in my upper body, I go to LA Fitness, I work out for 45 minutes, and I don't think about it the rest of the day. I don't walk around flexing my muscles during the day. But after two months of that, working with a trainer, I suddenly help someone move something heavy, and it dawns on me, I could not have done that two months ago. You go to brain gym to change a habit. If you try to do it in real life, by definition, it's already too late. It's a habit afterwards. You work on those by going to Brain Gym. If you do buy the book, The EQ Edge, chapter 2 is the chapter that unpacks this common model, ABCDE, and will give you some more information about it. Well, I promised that we'd do three things. We've done two of those. Are you ready for the fun one, number three? You're either brain dead, quiet, spellbound, or wishing that I would just move on. Do all of you fit one of those categories? I want to vote on it. Category. All right, here we go. Well, I did some research on Foursquare pastors. Not all the Foursquare pastors in the world. They were men and women who led a very distinct uh, category of church. They were all pastors in existing churches. And all of them led one of two kinds of churches. So church planters were not in the mix. Uh, These were pastors of churches, on one hand, who were wildly successful, institutionally speaking. And so we picked the best of the best. We looked at churches. There were over 3,000 that were in the database. You say, how does that be? We only have like 1,700 churches. Well, over the span of 25 years that we looked at these churches' history, there were over 3,000. And we put, did some statistical analysis to discover those churches that had effectively done a turnaround. Turnaround churches are churches that have been declining in growth and have suddenly taken a growth spurt that has been sustained for a period of time. And so it's a hockey stick kind of growth. We looked at uh, weekend attendance for churches. There's many other ways to evaluate the health of a church, I understand. Make no apology about it. I just want you to know what we were looking for here. It's very difficult to find turnaround churches. You know that, don't you? Ed Sesser called them comeback churches, and the book that uh, is the popular form of the research that he did, which included some four-square churches, he had to go to several denominations because you don't find comeback churches. It's a very rare thing to find a turnaround church. of the churches in North America, not Foursquare, but uh, other than Catholic churches, 84% of the churches in North America are plateaued or in decline or failing to keep up with attendance growth in their communities. 84% of the churches in North America are candidates to be a turnaround church. If the vision for the church is to have a vibrant, growing future. And most churches that I've been associated with working with churches for 25 years or so, is that they tend to have a vision of a brighter future than their current present. Has that been your experience as well? Furthermore, this is an interesting area of study because in the next 15 years, even those of us aging boomers that are in denial, one way or the other are going to be transitioning out of our senior pastorates. We might be pulled out, dead or alive, kicking and screaming, or we might choose to move on, but we will be leaving. And what we are leaving in our wake are turnaround church candidates. We are leaving, statistically speaking, churches that are in decline. That's what we're leaving behind us. And so the idea of how can we prepare 
men and women who feel called to be senior pastors to move into a church that is a turnaround candidate and will likely not turn around statistically speaking because only a small percentage of older churches grow. Of the 16% that are growing, the vast majority of those are under 20 years of age. You know, don't you, that churches that are over 30 don't grow numerically? Those are outliers. Those are phenomenal. Those are rare things. And a church that is older, that has been in decline, and then accelerates forward is an extremely unusual beast. Hmm. So we ask the question, is it possible, since this tool has been used to be predictive in the selection of people in many other professions and occupations, would it be possible that there's a profile of pastors that God has used to effectively lead a turnaround church? And so we've looked and found for those people. And then to do this research, you have, to, you have to get some brave, courageous people that have not been institutionally so successful. You understand what we're doing here? You've got to have a comparative group. So proud of the people that participated. I was also interested in this research because Ann and I are living one of those stories. We co-lead pastor Evergreen Christian Center in Hillsboro, Oregon, which is in its 83rd year. Is Angelus Temple 89 or 90 years of age? 90? 90? 83 years old. The church we lead is one of the oldest four-square churches in the world. It has been and is a great congregation. But it did experience several years of precipitous decline, losing two-thirds of its weekend attendance. And had a variety of interventions that were required to whomever was going to come to that congregation that you might assume. For a church that retained staffing levels that it had at three times its current size, that had burned through its reserves and now did not have more money to work on, that was in a 36-year-old building that probably was going to need some improvement, and that had about five times the number of ministries that could be sustained by the staff and volunteer leaders that were left. So we were sent to this church, truly a turnaround candidate, because our district supervisor and the elders and the council of that church all enthusiastically and with sincere uh, conviction of God's call and vision that the future of Evergreen Christian Center was to be vibrant and thriving again. Uh, Ann and I were very interested in what might it look like for someone to come and give leadership to this thing, and maybe we could get on that train. Some of you don't know us well. Those of you that know us kind of know that we like to be associated with church planting. We like to help start things. We don't remediate things. I either break things or I start things, but you should keep me out of the renovation process. I, I can break it for you, but I cannot fix it. And so there was some self-interest and some preservation involved as well. Well, I'm happy to report, and every researcher that actually gets some results that he or she is interested in is happy to report those because most research doesn't lead to results, right? It just prepares a trail for other people to say, if you want to replicate this research, do something different because it didn't work that way for me. But we found some remarkable results. And you notice them there on turnaround pastor competencies that we discovered that these men and women had five 
areas in common that were significantly different from the EI profiles of the other group of leaders. And those are emotional self-awareness and assertiveness and independence and flexibility and optimism. Now, Ann and I are coming up on four years at Evergreen, a turnaround situation. And when we did our annual meeting a couple of weeks ago, it was a very fun story to tell. You know, we actually had charts and graphs and all of those things. Those are fun stories. Look at this. The attendance has grown by 50% in three and a half years. Look at this. The financial giving is going along with us. You know, we're a mid-sized church, 800 people. You know, we celebrated 201 people coming to Christ last year. And 69 were baptized in water. And there were... There were 212 kids aged birth through sixth grade in average attendance last year, almost three times what there had been three years ago. These are fun things to celebrate, aren't they? Yeah. And we had everybody, you know, whipped into a frenzy about that. Yay, God. And that's a yay, God story. We did not show you the chart of that 60% of the people that were there three and a half years ago left. Most of them not overwhelmingly happy. We did not talk about the year lawsuit that Ann and I just finished, being sued by personally by a church member for a combined total of $2.3 million, which was kind of gratifying that he thought we might be worth that much. But that was the only fun thing about being sued by a church member and having to defend ourselves in court. We didn't tell the story of what it felt like to meet a staff and on the first day sat down and in the first compound sentence says, It's really nice to meet you, and four weeks from today, we will announce that who of the least 50% of you will be laid off. Those are the stories that weren't told, right? That's a turnaround situation. So when you look at these five, it almost becomes intuitive and self-apparent, doesn't it? Probably if you're going to be in a conflicted environment for three to seven years, we would only wish for three. Seven's probably be closer to it. Three to seven years that it might be nice to have some emotional self-awareness so that you actually knew when you were feeling and you actually could label it and own it and express it in helpful and not harmful ways. So I didn't unwittingly transfer my feeling on someone else to blame them for how they were making me feel right now. Yeah, that makes sense. How about assertiveness? Pleasantly persistent. I love you so much. You're screaming at me, sending me zippy emails and talking, but I'm going to outlast you. I just do that. I just keep coming back for more and more. And your blood pressure is rising and you're flushing with anger, but I'm just smiling and saying, let's talk about this. In fact, let's come back and talk about it some more tomorrow when we might actually be able to have an even better discussion. That's what assertiveness looks like. Makes sense, doesn't it, in a conflicted situation? How about independence? Caring too much about what I think other people might think or feel about a decision? Yeah. Not having the paralysis of being too concerned about what I think other people might feel. Or how about flexibility? Think there might be lots of surprises coming down the pike in a highly conflicted change environment? Yeah. Wouldn't it be nice to just habitually, intuitively be able to respond to those in a situation and still keep the whole thing moving forward? Yeah. And optimism? Oh, baby, got to have this one. Not every Monday morning do I look as cheerful as I did yesterday when I met some of you. And will attest to that. You know what Mondays are like? Yeah, of course. Optimism. But you know, 
as bad as today feels, as mean as they were, they didn't just leave as a family. They actually hived off another inadvertent church plant last week. As bad as things are today, it's going to be okay. Usually is. Turns out pretty well. Let's hang in here and see how things go. Now, I have just made a case for why those five areas make sense in a turnaround situation. But I could have made an equally good case about any of the other 11. This is not intuitive. That's why research is done. It's to tease out in a group experience. Are there some things that we couldn't have discovered in another way? And here's the great news for you as trainers and educators. People don't have to take the EQI to grow. But if you're in the business of preparing men and women to be leaders of existing churches, then you are in the business of training leaders for turnaround churches. That's what we are. And if you help them become more whole as human beings in their emotional self-awareness, assertiveness, independence, flexibility, and optimism, you will have added to their toolkit some human substance stuff of wholeness that will make it more likely that God will effectively use them to successfully beat the odds and actually give leadership to a turn around church. George Fox University, uh, I have the privilege to be on uh, adjunct faculty there, and I work with D Men students in the track that Leonard Sweet leads. And uh, Jules Glanzer was the, uh, was the dean of the seminary until uh, recently he moved on to Tabor, Tabor College uh, as the president. But uh, for a while at George Fox Evangelical Seminary, Jules Glanzer was having every incoming seminarian, whether at a master's or a doctoral level, take the EQI. Because he said, one of the things that we want to do while you're here is we want you to become a more healthy human being. Because we've discovered that more healthy human beings tend to be better pastors than less human, healthy beings. Human beings. Or beings, as the case may be. Now, over on the left-hand side is where there's some information. You know, when research is done, uh, by the way, uh, you, uh, we do not have the slides to support the second page. So you're there either on the hard copy or... Uh, uh, on your computers or devices. Uh, I was not looking for the information that shows up in the column, lowest factors for pastors. This was shocking. Uh, this rarely shows up when this kind of research is done for uh, occupations or professions. But what we discovered was that these two very different groups of four-square pastors, different in terms of their institutional success, shared the same three qualities in common as their collective lowest qualities. And it was these three. This is, this is shocking. There's only a handful of professions that are toxic professions. A toxic profession is one where if you come into it and you faithfully serve long enough in it, it will reduce your health as a human being. That's toxic. 
Happens with certain kinds of practicing law, certain kinds of medicine, and certain kinds of law enforcement. Mike, you would say yes, <laughs> law enforcement fees. Toxic roles. That this is, let's put it in our biblical language, Saul's armor. And if you are David with a slingshot, and you are going into battle with Saul's armor, you are going to be bruised, you're going to be broken, you're going to be bleedy, bleeding, you're going to become calloused, you're going to be fatigued, and you're ultimately likely going to be unsuccessful because you are carrying stuff that you are not well equipped. It will change your experience. A toxic role reduces who you are as a healthy human being. Now, when organizations discover that they have a role with uh, where their highest performers and lower performers end up having the same three in common, they only have two options. One is that they have selection processes that adversely select people that are low in those areas. And so if we were a large company like Intel, we would immediately go to our HR practices and say, what are we systematically doing that's attracting people who think poorly of themselves, make bad decisions, and are very unhappy? And they would do something with selection. But it's, it's laughable in Foursquare over the last 25 years that we have had a selection process that was so sophisticated and commonly distributed across the districts that we have a selection issue. It's just not there, is it? No. So what do we have? Well, you're glad that you paid money to came, come today to hear that you're preparing people for toxic roles. Isn't that, do I have an amen on that? Yeah, that's very exciting news here. Yeah. It's actually pretty sobering, isn't it? Which is why we have to have a little bit of levity. Some new promotional brochures. By the way, all of the district supervisors and their spouses, along as the national team, uh, have gone through this and been debriefed. And so we've had uh, some time to play with this. Several supervisors are using this currently for selection and for training. So we've, uh, we've, made, uh, we've made a joke that uh, some of the districts are coming up with new promotional materials and new web content. Come and be a Foursquare senior pastor in our district. And we can guarantee you three things. If you serve long and faithfully, you too can think poorly of yourself, make bad decisions, and be from sad toward depressed. Yeah. Ah. So that's the deal, though. That's the deal. Not every four-square pastor is in that category. But that's where our pastors have landed. And so this is what we have learned We are training people to go into jobs that will diminish them in some ways from being healthy people. And while I want the soberness of that to be felt and owned and accepted, I want to immediately turn to the good news. It's just a job that gives you bad habits. So why don't we just fix bad habits? Now, it's going to take someone younger and smarter than me to universally overhaul the job that we call senior pastor, right? But I will tell you this, an individual pastor can overhaul the job. I will assure you this, that the way Ann and I co-lead Evergreen Christian Center is unique to us. And it's designed around us making our best and highest contribution, which includes being and staying healthy. And we're not planning to do that job with Saul's armor. We've got to take the slingshot and the stones in with us. 
And so we have massaged and crafted how we're of service to that congregation in a way that draws the best and highest contributions from us in our servanthood and sustains an environment where we will think well of ourselves, true humility, that we will have a problem-solving process that really leads toward good decisions, that we will be happy people with a robust sense of joy and well-being in life, and we lead from that strength as well. So here's the good news about uh, the work that you're doing. Uh, well, before I give you the good news about that, let's take a look at how, the, how is the role uh, of Pastor Toxic. Take a couple of minutes to unpack that, and then we're going to finish up with a so what for you. What I'm giving you here uh, uh, regarding these three areas is, uh, is not research-based, it's anecdotal, and it's Jared's opinion. But I will tell you, when we've had the opportunity to speak not only to Foursquare leaders, but to leaders of other denominations, uh, the first thing they say is, uh, Jared, you did your research with Foursquare. You've given us all of the disclaimers because, you know, you should not take research in a particular population and extrapolate that out. I'm very careful with those disclaimers. Someone within five minutes will say, you know all that disclaimer stuff? Just trust me on that. You're talking about us too. My hunch is that the toxic role is the way church is done, at least in North America, and is not specific to us. So we've gotten a lot of feedback from people on what their experience is, and I'm suggesting that these may be some of the reasons. Self-regard, number one, critics are increasingly vocal. Have you noticed that? Yeah. The power differential professionally has been shrinking in our culture. The distance between us laymen and attorneys, we laymen and women and doctors, we laymen and women and clergy, is shrinking in our culture, that power differential. It's not that people think any less of you than they used to. They're just much freer to tell you about it. That's a sociological shift. Secondly, they're much better informed. When someone tells me after a service, Mark Driscoll is sure a lot better exegetical Bible preacher than you are, they know exactly what they're talking about. And other than a few quirks in his theology that make me really mad, they are absolutely right about that. They are not only more vocal critics, they are much better informed critics. They think I suck, and they're absolutely right about that. And they're happy to tell me about that. How long can you live in that environment and not get worn down? It's toxic. It just wears you down. Secondly, social media creates a public audience. Oh, I guess. Not only are they well informed about how bad I am, they regularly tell the whole world about it. And then many of our pastors struggle with physical health, poor body image, financial challenges. You know what it's like. I live the life with you. Overweight, under-exercised, stressful, not sleeping well, not eating well, not saving enough money, having opted out for Social Security, being stuck financially, not being able to help my kids go to college the way I wish they were, being in my late 50s, early 60s, having no idea how I'm going to move into retirement. Young people are coming behind me. Supervisors are telling me to get out of the way. I am stuck in life. 
that will wear you down. How do you get up in the morning after 15, 20 years of that and say, I know myself warts and all, but bless God, I think he did a pretty good job with me. It's a toxic role. Problem solving. I think we, Foursquare, are a perfect storm of polity and theology to bring this one. Our polity forces, in my opinion, way too many decisions to the top. I'm a lead pastor. I am now an expert on everything. I'm an expert on sex and marriage and pre-marriage and parenting and business and mean people and stressful situations and retirement and how to run a church and blah, 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 blah. And I make 10 times more decisions than God designed a human being to make. I think that's our polity. Okay? What am I going to do if I'm having to make 10 times the number of decisions that I'm equipped to make? I am going to short-circuit the process, and I'm going to teach my brain to short-circuit. And somewhere along the line, I'm going to learn that it's faster to skip a step or two in good problem-solving when it relates to relationships. Somewhere, I've stopped either, and here's the possibilities, knowing that there's a problem, labeling the problem. Japanese management says you should spend 80% of your time labeling the problem, know the problem you're dealing with. Answers are often self-apparent. Coming up with multiple solutions to the problem, evaluating those and choosing one and executing it, short-circuiting the process. That's polity. If I have to make way too many decisions, I'm going to find a shorter way to do it. Here's the theology. The intimacy, immediacy of the voice of the Holy Spirit. Now, by the way, I love our polity, and so do you. Sam uh, Rockwell just finished his PhD research looking at who we are and our identity. Foursquare pastors, we love our polity. Don't mess with the polity. We like the polity. And I'll tell you what we better else not mess with is our belief in the baptism with fullness of and intimacy and voice of the Holy Spirit in our lives. But here's the perfect storm. If I need to short-circuit good decision-making, and if I believe that the Holy Spirit speaks in the moment, it's possible that from time to time, the first thought is called the God thought. And I can habituate, I can train my mind, I can develop neural pathways that interpret the first thought as the God thought. The potential for a perfect storm of theology and of polity. And happiness. It's a travesty that Jesus came to say, came to give life that is abundant, fuller and more robust than your dreams. Life more abundantly. It's amazing that Paul or whoever wrote Hebrews said, you want to have a good model for how to live life? Just remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Do an analysis about how it worked out for them. And if it worked out well, go ahead and imitate their faith because you'll discover the consistency of Jesus in their lives who's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And for people who lead us, to be moved from joy us 
too moderate, too sad toward depressed in a chronic state of being. Yeah. So there's some correctives for that. There's some things that we can do about it. We can actually move forward. And I noticed there under happiness that happiness is, is often de- accelerated by doing acts of kindness and extending forgiveness and expressing gratitude and having nourishing relationships. Doesn't that sound biblical? By the way, that came directly out of secular research. Those are the top four happiness builders. Is that crazy or what? It's kind of like you're reading maybe the epistles. Maybe there's some Colossians and some, some uh, Ephesians in there someplace. Yeah. So why is it that pastors who are professionals at building relationships, acting in kindness, extending forgiveness, and expressing gratitude get less and less happening? Think about it. This is an amazing thing. I'm doing what others do that makes them happier. And while I'm doing what makes others happier, I get sadder. So what's the deal? You'd love for me to tell you, wouldn't you? Oh, I know you're on the edge of your seat. Here it is. Pastors who are faithful for a long time often have siloed their lives. Major life domains, all of us have at least seven of them. But if you're really faithful, if you're really committed, if you're really burning out for Jesus, if you're really a good shepherd and pastor, your life becomes this silo where the other life domains begin to become smaller. And this one, my professional expression of my spiritual calling as pastor gets taller and taller. And guess what? I'm not coaching Little League. I'm not a member of the school board. I am not engaged in community groups that have nothing to do with my being a pastor. I am not a good citizen. And this is what happens for pastors. Every act of kindness is a professional obligation. You say, oh, no, it's not. I don't feel that. I'm kind because I love people. Well, if you're loving people in the professional silo... It is an obligation, and your brain is smarter than you are on that. And if you've done it in your professional capacity, your brain gives you no new learning about that. We do the same things we tell other people to do. It makes them happy. It moves us towards sad. Unless I live the kind of harmonious life that we tell other people to live. Some of you use the word balance. I don't care for that word. I don't mind. I use the word harmony. It's when we live a harmonious life that has extension and balance in it, that has areas of real contribution in the lives of others that don't come while I'm wearing the professional hat pastor, that our lives can be rejuvenated by this opportunity to intrinsic not obligatory opportunity to share with others. Well, enough about the toxic role and just about enough with me. Bert, you didn't use all of your time today. I'm using every stinking minute of mine. Every, every stinking minute. Here we go. 15 minutes to go. And I'd like to wrap it up with you. With EI and four square leaders. 
Well, there's some obvious op- uh, opportunities for pre-service training, don't you think? If we know that we are preparing people to go into the kind of vocational ministry that may lead them toward being a lead pastor in a turnaround church, let's help them grow in emotional self-awareness. Let's help them grow in assertiveness. Let's help them be independent. Let's help them develop flexibility. Let's create an environment for them that helps nurture optimism for them. And it just could be that we'll help them with some good habits that if and when God calls them to serve a turnaround church, that that'll be another set of tools in the toolbox that God will use to help them beat the odds that potentially that church may actually be a turnaround story. And if we are preparing people to go into vocational ministry, and at this point, by the way, for those of you that are staff members, the research hasn't been done. And my anecdotal experience by doing scores, if not hundreds of staff members, is that many of you beat the rap. It seems like the lead pastor has the privilege of being worn down in these three areas. (laughs) But if we are training men and women to serve potentially as lead pastors, we had better help them not get broken apart with Saul's armor. And we today have some new language for Saul's armor. Saul's armor is a cultural role. It's not a biblical role. It's not anti-biblical, but it's cultural. Train people to differentiate between their spiritual calling to pastor from the cultural job called pastoring. Yes, to fulfill their spiritual calling pastor, they may have to do it in a cultural job called pastoring. But help them flex in that role to minimize the downside. Help them be robust in ways that give them a healthy view about who God has made them, warts and all. Help them be people who habituate good problem solving. It takes nothing from the work of the Spirit to do that, but it takes intentionality. And help people live a life of balance or harmony, engaged in different life domains in ways that over the long haul will keep them from being so siloed That every act of kindness, every gratitude expressed, and every forgiveness given will be a professional obligation. But that they can actually model the life of the people that we're invited to follow. This is what the writer to Hebrews said. Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life. And then, and then imitate their faith. I would suggest this to you as I conclude. We can develop new mental habits that are like the mind of Christ. We can develop leaders who are better equipped than some of us have been to be and sustain a healthy life. And we can be leaders about which it will be said, 
I remembered, I considered, and I will imitate that life. Lord, would you help us be men and women about whom it can be said, I want to be like her when I get old. Help us train men and women who will be able to move into whatever you call them to do with some of the insight and wisdom that you've given for us now. As we add this little slice of the pie, it's just a tiny little sliver, but it's a helpful piece. Would you help us lead people in ways that release more of the stones from a slingshot with less of the labor under Saul's armor? Would you help us be and live healthy? And would you help us train and send healthy ones too? That's our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Awesome. Thank you, Jared. When I was a kid... I was wondering if it was an R-rated movie and I shouldn't have seen it. But there was a movie called The Toxic Avenger, so that may be the answer. Someone dipped in radiation fluid and he became a superhero. So those are our future paths.